Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the real path to success for improving customer experience in government. We need an organization in the federal government that reflects the voice of the the customer. And that's got to be created in an operational organization. And a payoff for the government's cyber work with the private sector. It was Apache that came forward on the log force stuff. That both soothes me and discomforts me. It soothes me in the sense I'm glad to see the cooperation with the private sector. The bad news is how much we pay in the public sector to keep an eye on this stuff. It's Thursday, December 30th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A change of pace this week, a look ahead to what's coming in 2022. Some of the most experienced practitioners in government are giving you their top two for 2022, the two things they think you should watch in the new year. First, a reminder, though, IT leaders from the Energy Department, the IRS, the State Department, and the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center at the Pentagon are coming to the Cloudera Government Forum 2022. It's Wednesday, January 19th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can read more about it and see the agenda in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Office of Management and Budget says the president's management agenda will form the framework of a lot of agency actions in 2022. Two of the three pillars of the PMA are customer experience and managing the business of government. Mark Foreman is executive vice president at Dynamic Integrated Services. He's former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget. And Mark, I know you well enough to know that when you saw the PMA and you saw those two items were included as priorities, that uh, you were pretty geeked up about that, and you confirmed that by choosing both of those things as your top two for 22. First one, customer experience. Why is that so prominent in your on your mind right now, Mark? Welcome. Uh, thanks, Francis, and it's, it's good to be here. Uh, I think this is the rebirth of tried and true e-government reforms. Um, so many of these concepts from the dot-com era the government adopted were really prevalent in the way things worked around the world. Uh, Australia had Centerlink. They continue to use Centerlink. Centerlink was the concept that uh, the government should integrate their social services, uh, especially around payments, and that if you applied a life events model, you could do much better prediction and hence service delivery from an integrated perspective of what key constituencies might need, uh, disabled people, veterans, uh, people growing up in in rural areas and things that that they might need, which would be different than people growing up in in an urban area. And same thing with Canada. Service Ontario was always one of the benchmarks that that people used. And I I just see this coming back. I think it's a great thing. Obviously, it's uh, 15, 20 years later. So, I expect that we'll see it at a much higher level of results. You note in the piece that you sent me, Mark, that uh, you'll be following what investments will be made and whether progress will be made on consolidating services and processes around the citizen. What's the progress that's reasonable to assume in those areas, given what the government has to work with now, what the starting point is, and where it has to go? The the executive order that recently came out on customer experience highlighted some areas of consolidation around the the citizen. I think it's really hard. We had 25 
e-government initiatives, some of which live on today. I should say almost all of them live on today because they were put into legislation. Uh, but the concept is that you want to have a portfolio of initiatives. And I think that's what, we're, what I'd be looking to see reborn. Um, portfolios would be the government to citizens. So consolidating around the citizen requires both a vertical and a horizontal. Looking across the agencies like was started with gov benefits and disaster help.gov and some of these other things where it has to be a multi-agency approach to simplify the interface with the citizen. Um, and then vertically across federal, state, and local, because many of these services are delivered by case managers and you want them delivered by case managers that are closest to the citizen, but you don't want the citizen to have to go to five different case managers because different agencies are different programs. Same thing for businesses. And I think the, the same thing for uh, state governments that, that deal with things. Uh, disaster help I, met, I mentioned is one of those. Uh, when we kicked off that initiative, Craig Fugate was the head of the National Emergency Managers Association, the president of it, I think they called it. And he was the emergency management director in Florida. So this was before he came to FEMA as the director. Uh, there were 53 different agencies running disaster help initiatives and programs in a disaster. And he made an impassioned plea to the officials in the room that I'll never forget. He said, look, we know that you're all doing wonderful things to help citizens in an emergency, but you're making our lives very difficult and you're forcing us to be your integrators. Please work together and integrate the way you're delivering service. And I've never forgot that. That concept of integration is potentially the way to measure success in this customer experience executive order, isn't it, Mark? If that's if the government reaches that end state at some point, that's success, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's measurable. I think we're seeing more and more agencies understand that this concept in John Doerr's book, Measure What Matters, and the concept of objectives and key results. And uh, within the, the capital planning and investment control process, those elements of Klinger Cone, uh, the OMB report used to be called a, an Exhibit 300. We now know them as business cases. And you and I have talked a lot about business cases, but that's really what we're talking about here. In the past, you measured cost schedule and performance was, did you do an activity? Did you achieve a milestone? What you're really talking about here, and I think what is necessary is we change that performance measure to, to focus on outcomes. And I really like that OKR model, measure what matters. And what matters here is, did the customer, the citizen, the business, did they use what was built and did it achieve the outcome that was intended? And we'll need to integrate that more with these business cases for the initiatives that implement the president's management agenda. So that connects directly to priority three in the PMA, the improving the business of government. And you write, uh, the question that you pose is how to operationalize a commitment to drive more benefit from grants and procurement set-asides. Why did you focus on that piece of it in particular, Mark? Uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, let, let's take the, the set-asides issue. The president's goal is to double the amount of procurement dollars going into uh, small disadvantaged businesses, women-owned businesses, hub zones, and veteran 
uh, service disabled veteran-owned small businesses, which is a worthy goal. But the reality is, if you look at the number of those companies, there's been so much growth and graduation, you're doubling the amount of money with half the amount of businesses, basically. So uh, this makes it a very difficult problem, such that the organizations that are doing the certification, largely SBA, and then issuing the contracts, have to figure a way not just to recruit a few more vendors, but to dramatically increase the amount of companies. And, and that's, that's a worthy goal. It's very hard to do that. So I know this situation from the past means you, you really got to do what they used to say, think out of the box and uh, consider how do you dramatically change this? I, I've seen a small business administration starting to work with states and basically say, look, if a state qualifies a company for doing small business in the state, maybe they should be automatically qualified for serving the federal government. And that would be a way to dramatically increase the pool. Uh, again, I think this is a place where the, that OKR model, model fits. Uh, what matters is not just that you're spending more dollars, but you're getting the outcomes. The government agencies are getting what they need and you're getting valid vendors to participate in that program. You've been beating the drum about improving grants management for a long time, Mark. What's the potential there and what tools or, or what pieces do you see here that give you optimism for improving that process and improving those outcomes? The president's management agenda not only talks about grants, but the whole catalog of federal domestic assistance. Uh, part, part of the customer experience in the government-to-government, -government, the G-to-G space in that portfolio, has to look at rationalizing how these grants are awarded and administered. And the key to that uh, vertical integration and horizontal integration for so many of the programs that you need for priority two are grants programs. That's how the government works with state and local governments and to administer these programs. So uh, I think that there are going to have to be much more integrated systems in terms of the delivery channel, uh, not just how those grants are made, but how those programs are administered in a consistent way that pulls in the customer experience all the way down to that end user. And those don't exist in the grant systems right now. The other element of this is it's very easy to say the binding constraints on these grant systems have been controls implementation in response to audits. And let's just get rid of the controls and streamline the flow of funds out to the marketplace. And that's a very slippery slope. I think integrating the insights from the PAC, the, PRAC, the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, where they've done just tremendous work. Their chief data officer, Brian Lorenz, has done tremendous work on identifying these, these behavioral models of fraud, waste, and abuse, and integrating that into the risk management on these grant programs in a way that balances the binding constraint on operational effectiveness with managing fraud, waste, and abuse is that next wave for these programs. One of the things I love talking about you, Mark, is we always spend our time, I think, on big ideas. And one of the big ideas that just about every administration since I've been covering the government has attempted is some form of realignment or reorganization. 
Is it possible that this concept of integration cross agencies, cross bureaus within agencies or whatever could render moot the entire idea of agency reorganization? Because if these agencies really can exchange data and can exchange information in the way that we're suggesting in, and in the way that the president's management agenda suggests, it's not necessary, I don't think, anymore to move this box from this agency or this bureau to this other agency or this other bureau. They just talk to each other through technology and we can forget about all of this idea of moving people in in changing reporting structures and all that kind of stuff. Am I, am I on the wrong track there? Or am I thinking the right way, do you think? You're thinking the right, right way. There are two binding constraints that need to be addressed. One, which was recognized in the, the executive order and the PMA is the budgeting process. So each program you know, you've got roughly 3,500, 3,600 programs in the catalog of federal domestic assistance. Each of those has a separate budgeting line item. And each of those are accountable to the Hill for creating a transactional system that implements that program and spends the money to the appropriate constituencies. It's interesting to me that a lot of those programs were created because the original program was not taking care of that constituency. So, so you've got to have a way to rationalize those programs and you've got to deal with the effect with the, the budgeting scenario. I don't think you can do it all at once. Uh, I think Congress needs to be made aware with issue papers in a decision-making process. And I think that occurs with the annual budgeting process. It's got to come from the budget committee because the appropriations committees operates in those silos and, and it's very difficult for them to bust that. The second binding constraint is who owns the voice of the customer? We created the Office of Citizen Services at GSA because we thought, well, maybe it's SSA, but SSA didn't want to do it. We thought maybe it's Health and Human Services, but they really work with the states. They don't really work with the citizens. We need an organization in the federal government that reflects the voice of the, the customer. And that's got to be created in an operational organization that can cut across and use that information exactly as you said. I think GSA is, is a decent one for that. So I'd like to see recreation of the, an Office of Citizen Services somewhere. Mark Foreman, great conversation as always. Thank you, my friend. Happy New Year. Thank you, you too. You can read more about Mark's top two for 2022 in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A reminder, we're off for New Year's Eve. We're back at it this coming Monday with a brand new year of shows for you. Monday's Daily Scoop podcast debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The National Cyber Director Chris Inglis says President Biden will delineate cyber jurisdictions and reporting structures in an executive order. Inglis said at the beginning of November, the EO was, quote, weeks to months away. Ron Marks is president of ZPN Cyber and National Security Strategies. He's non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. He's former special assistant to the assistant director of Central Intelligence for Military Affairs. Ron, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on and your top two for 22 you get super bonus points by making the first elvis reference in the history of the daily scoop podcast you write the year of the cyber offices and you subhead a little less conversation a little more action please oh how i wish i could play that song in this show but elvis's estate uh does not want me to without a lot of money so i will just say what are you getting at 
uh, by making that reference. Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis. Delighted to be here. Well, you've got all the pieces in place now. I mean, we, we spent a year with the Cyber Stellarium Commission, which just shut down, I think, on, on Tuesday, you know, making a, a series of pretty good arguments uh, and presentations and suggestions in terms of getting people in place. So, you know, Chris Inglis, there's now a national cyber director. Uh, Ann Duberger was already there at the NSC. Uh, Jen Easterly has uh, grabbed the horns over in CISA and has been running with it. You know, you got people in place and you've got Cyber Command now willing to commit to overseas operations and that's, or at least willing to admit it. Um, so, you know, all the pieces are sort of there and everybody's talking, but you've got two big challenges coming up here almost immediately, which is, you know, of course, you know, log, Log4j uh, is just stunning. I mean, it it uh, it reminds me, since I'm ancient now, of the days when somebody announced that all that PVC pipe in our homes, in fact, was faulty and that we needed to replace it all, which meant millions of homes need to replace that PVC pipe. And this is as near as I could tell the internet version of it. Um, and then on the foreign side, I think Cyber Command uh, is going to have to deal with, uh, with the Russians in Ukraine fairly shortly. I mean, the Russians are, and I'm sure they already are, you know, and they, the Gerasimov doctrine, uh, which I'm sure they're still following, is one in which they use the the cyber field to soften up the enemy, to con- not only to to take out the, the electronics, but to present the message uh, to the world. So you've got two big challenges sitting here in the late December, January timeframe. So you know, the conversation is over with now. Uh, it's one thing for I'll, I'll pick on Court Jen Easterly for a moment to to show up everywhere. Uh, to get the message out. I think people are getting the message, uh, but uh, now's the time we're going to have to uh, put our money where our mouth is or a little less conversation, a little more action, please. Oh, God, what a great song that is. And now I'm going to be doing that all over, all during the, <laughs> the holiday break. Um, you posed two rhetorical questions uh, regarding this idea of the year of the cyber offices, Ron. The first one is, now that the long-awaited mechanism has been set up, how are they going to implement policy over the government and the private sector? How so? How does one do that when there's still questions I think in the cyber community and in the broader government community about who has what autonomy and who has what authority. Yeah, there's, it's a combination of a war of attrition and actually getting Chris Inglis, some people over there. Uh, I understand he's got a lovely office in what's the president's guest house over there uh, on, on Jackson place. Uh, but he doesn't have any people underneath him and he's doing what he can at this point to begin to lay out some of the, you know, some of the roads here. Um, and some of the rules around those roads. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, Jen Easterly has done a wonderful job of getting CISA out front and center, but FBI is still there uh, coordinating. NSA is still doing its thing. Uh, NIST is still doing its thing. And I mean, like I said, I think there's cooperation there. And certainly Chris has tried to push that forward. But, you know, like over DOD, we're seeing some mixed actions with regards to the CMNC stuff. I think they just replaced the head of it. They're talking about reducing the number of uh, qualifications from five to three or whatever. There's a lot of mixed messages out there. And this is the kind of thing, again, I'll, I'll put this back in Chris's lap, which is that he's got the budget. Uh, he apparently has control of the program. He's working with OMB at this point. Uh, you know, he's got to set that in line. If he's got the money, people are going to listen to it. But he also has to make sure uh, that, you know, one agency is not getting out in front of the other and we're trying to coordinate all. And that is a war of bureaucratic attrition. I will base that on 38 years of experience here, which is he's going to have to slug it out in the trenches. But I wish he had the people to slug it out with. And, and he doesn't yet. And that's simply a function of the Congress uh, not getting him any money. 
Uh, he certainly doesn't have, uh, or nobody really has at this point, the kind of reporting requirements that they need to have from the private sector. That's hung up in the Congress. That got removed, as I recall, from the NDAA. Um, so there's there's some, you know, again, this is a question of, uh, you know, a little less conversational, more action. And it's going to take a full, you know, full blast effort on his part, plus dealing with all this other nonsense that's coming down the pike. So I wish I could give you a, a nice, positive, affirmative answer on this, but I'm afraid it is a war of attrition at this point, and he's got no choice but to sort of deal with it. And it is Chris that's going to have to deal with it. The second item, the second rhetorical question that you ask uh, is, what are the metrics of success? And that's a great question, because I'm not sure anybody knows what that looks like given that we assume breaches are coming, attacks are coming, and they're going to accelerate, they're going to get worse. Um, how do we know that they didn't get worser than they could have been or whatever the terminology is? No, I mean, I mean you're always dealing with, you know, if, if I buy a fire extinguisher, have I prevented a fire? You know, like, I mean, or, or you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's a hard it's a hard measurement. And I, I think that if you look at, you're starting to see a few metrics here and we can't get into, and please forgive the analogy, body counts at this point, but you know, we, we, we've convicted 15, whatever uh, we've brought these other guys to, to rest. We've broken up. I mean, there's some of that that has to take place to make people understand that there's a penalty involved here. Um, but, you know, in sheer numbers at this point, if I were to see some decline, uh, in the number of attacks that are going on, I would say, okay, this is interesting. Uh, if I'm seeing increased cooperation between the private sector and the public sector, and that means, you know, for instance, it was Apache that came forward on the log force stuff. That both soothes me and discomforts me. It soothes me in the sense I'm glad to see the cooperation of the private sector. The bad news is how much we pay in the public sector to keep an eye on this stuff. Um, you know, one of the things I think that we also need to see is whether or not we have a public sector in our government that's willing to go forward and begin to correct in advance some of these problems. Uh, I think what you got right now is defensive ball for the most part. And, uh, you know, when they, it would be nice to see them move forward. You see NIST and NSA do a little bit of it to try to get some of these things corrected, but there needs to be more of a show of that, I think. But in, in the final analysis, you know, can we keep our systems up? Are they reasonably protected? Are we going to continue to deal with ransomware? Are we going to have to continue to deal with these kinds of software breakdowns? Um, if those are lessened in some way, then we're okay. But the measurement of those things will, as you know, is always going to be tough. The second item in your top two for 22 regards the intelligence community. And you write, everything old's new again, sort of. We've been fighting a counterterrorism war for the last 20 years, and now China and Russia are back with a vengeance, literally, like the early 2000s in reverse. What are you watching in that sphere, Ron? Well, the toughest thing to do is, is to get people turned around who've been trained for years in a given area uh, whether or not it's targeting, whether or not, again, it's against an enemy that's a non-nation state, uh, and begin to deal with, you know, like a, a good old-fashioned, I'm, I'm sorry to say good old-fashioned case officer stuff, uh, where you're working targets in the field. Um, obviously, you'll have more of a mix of cyber at this point than you did in the past in terms of either connection or in terms of uh, your own, uh, your own uh, counterintelligence uh, issues. Um, not to mention the fact you're, you have a savvy enemy. I mean, the, this is, you know, the Russia is the leftover of the KGB. 
the, the Ministry of Security Services in China is no slouch either. Uh, they broke a big uh, network of ours not so long back, a few years ago. So I, I think we're we're in for some tough times in, in the sense of it takes a while to convert people over, find the people who can do the languages, uh, you know, find the shift to Chinese and Russian. I mean, I, what I was pointing out that 99 to 2001 period was as we started to shift over to CT, well, you know, did we have people who could target? Uh, did we have people who could speak Arabic? Um, you know, the, the Boren language program and these other things have been in place over the years, but that only goes so far. Um, you know, also, uh, you know, again, how do you get people in there who speak these things? They may speak them, but are they too closely related, for instance? And this goes into the counterintelligence and counterespionage stuff within the agency. So, you know, it's about a four or five year process at best. And, and you know, I, I, I'm sure you know, the agencies, wherever it burns, is very good over there. And I know what they're trying to do, but it just, you know, it's an aircraft carrier, okay? You know, you don't, you don't spin it on a dime. It takes a while to turn it. And that is going to be a real resource question as well. We're not flat on the budget so far. I was looking at the budgets for the year, assuming we get them passed. Um, but, you know, again, it's a question of just finding the people, getting them trained, getting them out in the field, get them inexperienced, and there's just no two ways around it that takes time. You write, uh, remember not to fight the old Cold War, given the different types of espionage involved, and you reference cyber attacks, uh, stealing information from private sector companies, nation states doing so, and you mentioned the Havana Syndrome, and we haven't really talked about that on this program, but those are just out-and-out attacks of some sort from somewhere from somebody on career civil servants in a, ver a variety of capacities that we can't figure out. And that strikes me as tremendously challenging and tremendously daunting in 2022. Yeah, it's, it's been a real thorn. I, and, I, and I think there have been some honest efforts within, certainly honest efforts within the CIA and others who've had to deal with this to try to find out. I, I know what my suspicions are, which is that the Russians and uh, love or the Russians or the Chinese love RF. Um, radio frequency direction. The Chinese have certainly used that kind of of weaponry against uh, against the Indian troops on the border uh, up in uh, up in the Himalayas. And um, you know, the fact of the matter is that you're dealing with direct attack on your people in the field. It is being directed. There's no doubt. You're also dealing, by the way, with people who now. You know, I, as we live in the COVID age, every sneeze, every cough, every whatever else, I mean, you're dealing with some false positives there, but you're also dealing with people who are obviously being attacked. This is a much more aggressive form uh, of warfare, of human warfare or human conflict than I think we had back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, much more desirous. No, 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 don't get me wrong. Guys got beat up. Guys got, you know put away and, and uh, locked up for a while and all like PNG and whatever else. But this is a much more nasty, much more aggressive form uh, of contact. So, you know, again, you talk about developing talent over time. One of the other things that's happening here is while you do not have necessarily the risk that you did in counterterrorism, you still have risk here. And, you know, are, are you going to get people who are willing to do this? Um, you know, based on some of these other factors as well, this Havana syndrome as well. One other thing on, on what we said here before, and that is economic espionage. Now, that's something that's going to drag the Bureau in, and that's going to be something that drags DHS in. And that's not something that we have done not terribly well. That's not fair. The FBI has busted a lot of cases on this, but it's going to take a ramp up on that as well, if that is going to be part of our policy. And as I suspect it is, 
Uh, certainly from a national security standpoint, the Biden administration has already said that they want to look at this as a, as a part of their concerns over China. That's an area we haven't done a lot of, and that's going to take some training up as well. So there, this is a whole, not only a, an old field, but a new field in a lot of ways. And it's not, it's not your father's war, but at the same time, there's some elements of it contained in there. But all of this, I think, is, you know, again, it's a three, four, five-year process and at best. And I, I think we're, you know, we're in for some, some probably some rough, some rough times in the intermediate period. A lot of bracing stuff there, Ron. Thanks very much. And uh, look forward to keeping the dialogue going in 2022, my friend. Yeah, me too. Take care, Francis. You can read more about Ron's top two for 22 in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of The Daily Scoop Podcast. The show's available on all the podcast platforms. Wherever you want to listen to it, we're there. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Back on Monday with the top news of what's going on in government. Until then, Happy New Year, and thanks for listening to the Daily Scoop Podcast.